and welcome to the Gridiron Show ahead of Conference Championship Weekend. We've got to be talking about the head coach and carousel. Not much of a carousel anymore. Most of the positions now filled apart from the Eagles as we speak. We'll do exit interviews, talk about the teams that went out last weekend in the divisional round and look forward to the games this weekend. Uh, I'm Will Gavin, as always, joined by Gridiron Editor Liam Blackburn, by Features Editor Simon Clancy. Boys, how are we doing? Very well, how are you? Yeah, very well, mate. I'm good. And Liam, you? <laughs> Try to adopt a similar monotone. <laughs> well, it's people don't like podcasts that witter on at the beginning, apparently. I thought, unless you're like, you know, Joe Rogan or someone where you can get away with doing it for three hours a day. I think people want us to get into the football because there's so much to get into. So pleasantries out of the way. If we don't do them, Simon gets annoyed at me. He's like, oh, yeah, hello, Will. Thanks for saying hello to me. It's my fault, isn't it? It's absolutely your fault. Let's talk head coaching highs first. There's some of these that we've already discussed, obviously, Urban Meyer in some depth. I don't think we've actually talked much about Salah. So it's one that we've pontificated on previously about his coaching ability. But Liam, are you a happy Jets fan right now? I am, yeah. Um, a lot of what I've heard from people like yourself, Will, other 49ers fans, players, I know Richard Sherman was was really upbeat about it, sort of pundits. Everyone you speak to, you've got a lot of good things to say about it. And I think, you know, it's a classic example that happens with these teams. They go from one type of head coach and then they go completely the other type of way. You know, Adam Gaze was very monotone, more monotone than us. He was uh, incredibly boring, couldn't seem to galvanise fans or players. And to a certain extent, Todd Bowles, as much as I like him, was kind of similar. You now come into a guy who's talking about all gas, no break, kind of culture change, getting the players fired up. And I think Jets fans like myself who remember the Rex Ryan years are kind of excited to kind of get that those kind of scenes back. Someone on the sideline who's you know, going to be pumped up. I think he's one of those people like we you know. We talked about Matthew Sherry and... If he's not your coach, I think you hate him. But if he is, I think you absolutely love him and, and buy into him. And, you know, all, all of these coaches are going to be good talkers. That's why they've got these these jobs. But you come away, and it's very difficult to come away from a, an opening press conference not too impressed, although we might touch on Dan Campbell shortly. Um, I can tell you now, we there's no might talk about Dan Campbell. We will be talking about <laughs> Dan Campbell. I was trying to tease it, but there we go. Um, and I, I guess the other thing is, you know, it's, it's as important as a defensive guy to kind of what he's going to do because the Jets are a mess across the board, what he's hi- who he's hired elsewhere. And Michael Floor coming across as the offensive coordinator from that San Francisco offense as well is hugely important and arguably just as important as Salah in terms of he, he looks a good fit if they keep Darnold there and running that system or they can get whoever they want in with that second draft pick. Uh, John Benton, the offensive line coach. I mean, I think that Offensive line coaches are a massively underrated factor in the NFL. You look at the the improvement the Browns have made this year with Bill Callahan. You look at someone like Garrett Bowles in Denver and how much he improved with since Mike Munchak's come in there. And John Benson, you know, we've talked for hours about how good San Francisco's run game is. He was with the Texans when Arian Foster was a star there. So that that fills me with great hope as well. And and yeah, it's you know, there's there's a long, long way to go for the Jets, but again, it's it's another Another pre-season of optimism rather than last year where it was very, very downbeat. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fully on board with Salah. The Rex Ryan comparison is interesting because I think it's Rex Ryan without the drama. I know he's got the bombast, but it's you just don't think he's going to have the breakdowns and the same yeah. kind of... I mean, maybe that'll happen. Maybe the job will break the man. If but... any job can break you. <laughs> it's the New York Jets head coaching position. He's Dan Campbell without the moustache. <laughs> I'm not buying that. He is. He's he's as bombastic as Dan Campbell, who I know you two are going to slag off massively in a second. Uh, he's exactly the same person. But Dan Campbell, the difference being is that 
at least Robert Salas said intelligible, interesting things rather Everybody than just that bombast. Conference. Everybody that was at our press conference yesterday was like, this is an absolutely amazing press conference. I think you two have cherry-picked a couple of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he spoke for an hour. Literally all the Detroit people that were there, all the ESPN people were there, were like, this is an amazing press conference. But if but I was a Detroit person, it would be galvanized. Like, we, we all work in the media, and we all know that these people know how to handle these opening press conferences. It's incredibly hard to mess up an opening press conference and not say the right things. Well, people have messed up press conferences. I mean, what, what I loved about him was that he, he showed up looking like, I mean, what he was wearing, he looked like he had to sell like five Ford F-150s by the end of the day. I mean, he looked like a car salesman. Um, He's enthusiastic. He's bombastic. I mean, who are we talking about here? Are we talking about Salah? Are we talking about Dan Campbell? They're the same guy. You know, they did exactly the same press conference. If I was a, a fan of the Detroit Lions, I'd be wanting to put on my helmet and my shoulder pads and run through a wall for him. And that's kind of what you... I think we get carried away too much about the role of the head coach. What is he actually going to be doing? If his job is to... Is he going to be doing day-to-day coaching? Because that's not really what head coaches do. You know, head coaches don't go out there and on the practice field and coach, 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 coach for four or five hours. That's why you have coordinators. That's why you have, you know, his job is to manage the entire team. His job is to manage the morale of the players. His job is to be the front face of the, the organisation. You've got, kind of got to give the guy a chance to prove what he, he can do. He galvanised a, a Dolphins team a few years ago that were pretty down on their luck for a few games. And he's hugely highly regarded in New Orleans. And the fact that, you know, he's not as cool as Robert Salah shouldn't make him any less viable as a candidate. I don't even care about Dan Campbell. I just Oh, think, it does sound oh, like you what, care about him a little bit. The former no, Dolphins interview. I watched the press conference yesterday and thought, God, there's a lot of people wanting some sugar for their high horses, having not listened to the entire press conference, which I did. And I, I thought if I was, uh, like I said, if I was a Lions fan or a Lions player, I'd feel like, okay, yeah, this is, I mean, he's the anti-Matt Patricia. My concern, I mean, clearly we talk about, I mentioned earlier about getting someone in who's different to the last guy. And the reason why they've hired Dan Campbell is they want a complete culture change there and they want to completely rip up everything that Patricia and his Patriot way, Patriot ways was like. And I completely understand that. My issues are, A, giving him a six-year contract. You yeah. give six-year contracts to John Gruden, who's proved he can build a team elsewhere. You give a six-year contract to Matt Rule, who's proved he can build a completely program, a program from scratch and build it up. You don't give a six-year contract to a guy who's never been a coordinator in the NFL and has never called any plays, apart from when he was interim coach in Miami. Yeah, I mean, the other concern is they hired the head uh, general manager in Brad Holmes, who a month ago didn't even know Dan Campbell. That is now a relationship they've got forged from complete from scratch. Why would you not hire a, a new general manager and then see who he wants as his head coach? Because then, let's say you, in a couple of years' time, this doesn't work out. Do you then fire both guys? It seems a bit harsh to fire Brad Holmes when the head coach wasn't his hire at all. But then that's not Dan Campbell's fault that he was given a six-year contract, is it? I mean, he can't do anything about the length of the contract. Elsewhere, hot coordinators becoming uh, head coaches. Arthur Smith is now the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. Brandon Staley of the Los Angeles Chargers. Uh, and, uh, well, Nick Sirianni, I wouldn't say he got a hot coordinator candidate. Uh, one that I think for many was a bit out of left field is now the new Eagles head coach. Arthur Smith in Atlanta. I, I'm slightly concerned about that situation in that I really don't understand how teams can't get that you should hire a head coach and a GM in some way together. Whether it's a GM who picks a head coach candidate, whether it's a GM that knows the head coach and there's a, like a working relationship there. I hate to use a 49ers example, but Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch, there was a big link there before they came in and that's why 
if there's not an existing relationship, you're essentially going, right, the two most important people in our organisation are going to be handpicked by the owner as strangers, and we're just going to smash them together and see if it works. From what I understand of both these individuals, it might do, but I still find it amazing that that's the approach of a lot of organisations. I do think, I think Arthur Smith coming in, who's another member of that Shanahan overall, Mike, to be clear, not Kyle, coaching tree, and the offense that he ran in Tennessee, this suggests to me that they are saying, yep, Matt Ryan is going to be our guy based on everything they've said so far. We are going to stick with that massive contract and try and go and win in this window. I'm not sure that they've got what they need to do that, but Arthur Smith has shown great success with uh, with that Titans offense. Maybe he can go and do it again in Atlanta. The thing that concerns me about those guys that you mentioned is that they're all very white. Uh, <laughs> Terry Fontenot's not white, to be fair. Terry but... <laughs> not white, but in terms of the coaching, you know, I never want to hear excuses about Eric Bieniemy doesn't call the offensive plays. Nick Sirianni doesn't call the offensive plays. Do you know what I mean? It's uh, there. Are, there's a lot of question marks around. I think, some of I that. think Sirianni specifically, and we don't need to break this down too much. But my thinking on that is that that is a sham. Get a guy who we think will save Carson Wentz. It's not about yeah, the play yeah. calling. It's not about managing the team. It's about one player. Is Nick Sirianni more qualified to save Carson Wentz than Eric Bynum? Oh, I'm not suggesting that that's the case. Oh, no, I know you're not. I'm playing devil's advocate here. But. I mean, I, I think, and the Rooney rule, there's a wider conversation on it as well, because we've had this situation that I was messaging you guys about this morning with the coordinators, where you've got guys like uh, Mike McDaniels getting an opportunity, being immediately promoted to offensive coordinator, and you've got guys like, uh, it sounds like it's going to be Pat O'Hara as well in Tennessee, going from quarterbacks to offensive coordinator. Those internal hires aren't ticking the Rooney box rule, which now includes coordinators as well. And I think that that needs to be made sure that that's addressed. I think that the overall problem, part of it, is that, and beyond possible systemic racism, is you've got four coordinators on championship weekend, all of whom are black and have a really good shout of being a head coach this year or next. And none of them are going to get interviews beyond Eric Bieniemy getting the initial interviews because they're not allowed to interview at this point. I think if you push the process beyond this weekend or beyond the Super Bowl, then all four of those guys would be getting interviews at every available job. Yeah, that's absolutely the point that I was going to make as well in terms of, you know, you look at last season and Salah and um, Biannimi both being in the Super Bowl and did that hurt their chances? And, you, you know, you look at someone like Arthur Smith. I think Arthur Smith interviewed with every team. And so there's a panic situation there. You know, we, you know this social media, 24-hour news, it kind of feeds this, right, we've got to have everything now, now, now. Salah had two interviews. He left the building at the Jets and everyone was like, well, he could go somewhere else. You know, he could be hired somewhere else. The same with, um, the same with Arthur Smith. And, and these teams panic. They want to get someone in straight away and it, it does it it cripples um, and hampers the the coordinators that, that are doing really well and they're still in situations you know Brian Dable should have had a head coaching job after the work he's done with Josh Allen and Buffalo this year and the fact that they're still in in the playoffs and in championship Sunday is ultimately hampered him unless the Texans somehow I mean the Texans should be in the best position now because you know they've got the chance to hire anyone they want that's left by enemy should be the obvious option there but it's it does hamper these guys if they're still coaching in, in the, uh, towards the end of the season. And also, going back to your earlier point, Will, about general managers, if you have a general managers in at the start of January and you put that window in where head coaches aren't hired until after the Super Bowl, that means then you are in lockstep with your general manager and your general manager is picking your head coach because he's got weeks to decide who he'd like to go after. Well, the argument, though, is that owners and coaches, current coaches, have to take bear some brunt of the responsibility. I mean, 
you could argue that the two men most responsible for getting head coaching opportunities for minority coaches and black coaches in the NFL were Bill Walsh and, and Tony Dungy. And, you know, having worked for or been recommended by those two guys went a long way. But there's no current analogue to either of them, which is to say that it's disheartening that NFL owners don't care about improving the hiring record. But actually, beyond Bruce Arians, are there any other coaches who are explicitly trying to do anything to make things better? And I can't see that there are. And so, you know, Troy Vincent and Roger Goodell can do whatever they want. But really, it comes down to the process that coaches are promoting minority coaches from within their own ranks. But also ownership is, you know, ownership is a massive question mark. I think we're at a a point where it's 70% of players are BAME and 35% and yet we've got, what, three black head coaches and now three black head coaches or four BAME head coaches. Because, I mean, I did think there was one article that really went after the fact that there were zero BAME hires. And I was like, well, we have had the first Muslim head coach hired in NFL history who also is of a black and ethnic minority. Like, that is something. It's not everything by any stretch of the imagination, but the suggestion that it's... I think there has to be a context to it, but... I suspect Eric Bione will get the job in Houston, but not because he's the best candidate, which he probably is, but because it it will be used to save Deshaun Watson, essentially. You know, because it's clear that that's who Watson... I mean, if the Texans hire a white head coach, I, I can't see a way back for... Well, you're Sorry. talking about owners and coaches taking responsibility. You've got a quarterback there who is taking the responsibility yeah. on his own shoulders and banging the table. But Cal McNair, neither Cal McNair or Jack Easterby strike me as people who are forward-thinking, kind of... I think, like I said, I think Burnaby will be hired, but not because they believe he's the best candidate, but they believe that essentially they're gonna, he's going to save the arse of the franchise by, by keeping Deshaun Watson in the building. And look, we've not got any head coaches in this round, interestingly, at the moment, who are second-time guys, but there have been second-time guys interviewed. And actually, you look at, I said about the four this weekend, by enemies, the obvious one, but Les Frazier, I thought, was unlucky in Minnesota, had two really good seasons there, and then the arse kind of fell out after Adrian Peterson got injured and it all fell apart a little bit and he was sacked after one bad year. Todd Bowles was the Jets head coach. You shouldn't hold that against anyone. Love you, buddy. And, I, you know, in terms of the the offensive coordinator in Tampa Bay, former quarterback, come on, Byron Leftwich. Byron Leftwich. Um, you know, he's a guy who has been talked about in the terms of a future head coach somewhere. Nobody even talked to him this time around. I find the the guys who've previously been head coaches quite interesting because I, lo- I look at the Eagles situation and <clears throat> I know you said we won't go into too much, but there's a Jeff McLean did a piece for the Philadelphia Inquirer basically about why about Wentz's season and why it's broken down and basically saying that you know he's got such support from Roseman and, and Jeffrey Lurie and he doesn't respond well to tough coaching. He was calling audibles at the line of scrimmage just because he didn't like the play that Peterson was calling. He wouldn't own up to his own mistakes. I'm basically saying that the next guy who comes in is your job is to fix Carson Wentz. Well, there might be coordinators out there who've looked at it and said, actually, Carson Wentz is a problem. I don't think we can win with Carson Wentz. And the guys who've been head coaches elsewhere, people like Bowles, who've seen the situation in New York where the ownership's a mess, they don't want to go into a situation where they're already going to be, I mean, look at Houston, the situation there's a mess. You don't want to go into a situation where you're going to be disrupted by ownership and not being in a, in a, a situation to succeed even before you come in through the door. 
And I find someone like, you look at someone like Nick Sirianni, I don't know the guy, but it seems to me like he might be a sort of yes man. And that's why he's got the job. And that's another problem with the, with these, with these owners is they, they have a vision for their teams and they have an idea of what the head coach should be doing. And I think perhaps some of these head coaches that have been elsewhere rightly will say, well, no, I want to do it this way. And perhaps that's, that's affecting them getting jobs as well. Look how many black offensive coordinators there are in the, in the NFL. I think there's three because I think Marcus London has been promoted from quarterbacks coach in Indianapolis to replace Sirianni and be offensive coordinator there. I mean, the, the pipeline in itself is stymied when you've only got, you've got one black quarterback coach in the NFL, uh, which is Charles London in, in, in Atlanta, and three black offensive coordinators. I mean, that sort of tells its own story, doesn't it? Yeah, and the problem with that is it's it's the retreads of head coaches getting fired and then going assuming going straight away back into a, an offensive coordinator position. What is what has Adam Gay shown over the past few years that means he should automatically get an offensive coordinator job and be interviewed for the Seattle job? Why are we not interviewing exciting position coaches who've succeeded? You know, left field appointments out of college. It's it's just the cycle needs to change. The cycle needs to change completely for all this to happen. I think when Very people cool. talk about why the renewal rule works and doesn't work. I am totally aware that there will be very rare occasions where you have a situation like you had in Pittsburgh, where somebody literally comes in, they had it, they knew who their head coach was. And then Mike Tomlin comes in the door and blows them away and changes their mind. And that might not happen a lot with a lot of the owners in the NFL and how belligerent they can be, et cetera, et cetera. But getting somebody in front of you and seeing what they can do and giving them the opportunity to learn what the process is, learn how they could maybe impress someone more. Anthony Lynn talked brilliantly about this before he became Chargers head coach. Is having his first ever head coaching interview, he said, was a complete box-ticking exercise. But what it taught him about the process was hugely valuable to him going forward. And I think that's why I was really frustrated with the situation in San Francisco. Is, yes, OK, so they promoted D'Amico Ryans on the defensive side, and they could probably point to that and say, look, this isn't an organisation which is blocking people of colour getting those opportunities. But yeah, okay, you knew Mike McDaniels was going to be the offensive coordinator. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't take the other members on your staff who you think might have an opportunity of impressing and say, yeah, let's get them. Let's give them a chance to to at least try and impress us. And they will learn. We will learn. We'll know more about them. Someone like Miles Austin, who's now going to, by the sounds of it, end up in New York would have been a prime example of someone I'd like them to have at least given an interview to. And that, from my understanding is they didn't. And that's just bizarre to me. I mean, you look at Bionomy, Anthony Lynn, Marvin Lewis, Deuce Staley, Terrell Austin, Aaron Glenn, Todd Bowles, Leslie Frazier, Gerard Mayo, Jim Caldwell, all interviewed for head coaching jobs in this offseason. And none of them got a job. I mean, I think that pretty much tells you all you need to know. You know, how do you, but how do you change this pattern? I mean, I think that there's got to be more black GMs and and black owners, but is that really realistic? Again, it goes back to your earlier point, like, you know, I've forgotten the name of the guy who's been, Terry Fotnot, who's been hired by the Falcons, the general manager came in before there, Brad Holmes came into the Lions, the head coaches basically decided they're they're general managers who should be selecting these head coaches, and the head coaches are just being hired regardless of when they're coming in. I know I defended him earlier on, but Dan Campbell's never been a coordinator in the NFL. You look at Cliff Kingsbury, Cliff Kingsbury had a losing record in college. Both guys were hired over what you could argue were significantly more well-qualified coach. Drew Staley won a Super Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles. You look at, you know, Jim Caldwell obviously wasn't going to get the Lions job, but, you know, Leslie Frazier, if you're talking about retreads, how many, you know, 
is Leslie Frazier undeserving of a of a retread job where Adam Gaze is? I mean, I just find it all it's 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 depressing. It really is depressing. I, I have found the um, the general manager cycle really interesting because it's been a, it feels like it's a lot of guys who rather than the usual people we've heard a lot about they've probably got good agents and they've done the media rounds because they know that they might be in the conversation coming up but actually just really well respected if you speak to people around the league people like Brad Patton people like Brad Holmes people like Scott Fitterer people like Terry Fontenot who are all that yeah, okay, so the Jags went for uh, an experienced guy in Trent Bolke, and I suspect that is something to do with the fact that they know that Urban Meyer will be their key team builder, but they need someone who has the NFL experience of contracts and cap space, and he actually did a pretty good job of that when he was in San Francisco, even if the drafting fell off a little bit of a cliff later in his time there. I did find, and this is kind of counter to the, the conversation we were having, the whole idea of the compensation for developing someone. So the 49ers will get a third round pick in 2021 and 2022 because Robert Sala was developed by them and is now the head coach of the Jets. They're now getting a third round pick in 2023 because Martin Mayhew has been hired as the Washington GM. Now he's been at San Francisco for three or four years and maybe you could say he's rehabbed his career there, but he was the Lions GM for seven years. Like he's a guy who has been in the league, has done it, should be in these conversations already. I do feel slightly weird about getting a third round pick for that guy who... It's great that he's getting another opportunity, but I'm not sure that that's because of the 49ers taking the chance on him like it is with a young coach or with a, you know, a young member of player personnel. So that was just a bit of a weird one to me. We spent a lot longer than this than I expected, but it was a good conversation. I enjoyed it. We should get into what happened on Divisional Round Weekend, particularly to the teams that have crashed out of the competition. So we'll work our way across the weekend, boys. Of course, we've got Brian Billick coming up as well. So some of the big talking points we'll get into with him. Um, but let's work our way through the weekend. The Los Angeles Rams, first and foremost, they've now lost Brandon Staley in addition to losing in the Divisional Round. Well, in fact, I'll put it to you this way, particularly as we're slightly time-constrained. The Rams, the Ravens, the Browns, and the Saints. Simon, I'll come to you first. Of those four, who do you look at and think, yep, they are set up to be back at this point next year, and if not further? I think it's probably the Cleveland Browns, actually, because I think the other three teams have got massive question marks in terms of their philosophy or in terms of their quarterbacks. The, the Ravens... You know, how do you change that run, massive run first philosophy with a quarterback who is either not trusted enough to, you know, are you going to put the ball on Lamar Jackson 35, 40 times a game to get him to throw the ball down? One, no, because that's just not his game. Two, who's he going to throw it to? So that entire receiver unit needs a, a complete overhaul. You look at the Rams, there's huge question marks over Jared Goff, you know, whether he's the future. And you go to New Orleans, who are $116 million over the cap. Drew Brees is obviously going to retire I mean it was almost embarrassing in that game at the weekend his arm was so weak and do they have the, the answer on the roster is it Taysom Hill I know Sean Payton will that that is a quite literally a Taysom Hill he will die on but it's <laughs> really the future there sorry oh it's really great no I, don't apologize I loved it okay thanks buddy I loved it too and is Jameis Winston the answer and I think you know given the situation in that game and I know it was a very difficult political situation. You know, do you pull Drew Brees out in what is almost certainly his final game? But 
realistically, Sean Payton should have taken Breeze out of that game midway through the third quarter because they couldn't move the ball. He couldn't throw the ball down the field. They were so limited. The Buccaneers were able to bring safeties up into the box because they knew that they weren't going to hit them over the top. So they shut down the run game completely and dared Breeze to be able to throw it more than 20 yards, which he just simply couldn't do. So that's a huge question mark as well. So I think the Browns, whilst they have issues at all three levels of the defence, you know, a good draft and some health. You know, they get Grant Delpit, who didn't play a game back. They get um, Greedy Williams, who missed the entire season as well, back. And, and all of a sudden, you look at Delpit, Ronnie Harrison, uh, Denzel Ward, and uh, Greedy Williams, and you've got a decent secondary. But you kind of want to add to that. The linebackers are free agents, and they're losing, what, Olivier Vernon and Larry Ogunjobi on the defensive line. So they need help at all three levels. But I think they're the team that are potentially primed, especially with Odell Beckham coming back. You add one or two pieces in the receiving game, I think they're the team that are primed to, to push forwards. The big thing that Cleveland will take away from this is how well Mayfield played sort of second half of the season. You, you could argue outside of Rodgers that he actually was the best quarterback this weekend. I thought he made some massive throws in some big situations and all right, the Chiefs defence, we've spoken about that previously. But I, I think, you know, pressure situation, there was a lot of questions on Mayfield and he came through and, and that was the question going into the start of the year. It was, do we have the answer at quarterback, you know? And I think they definitely do now. They've got a good young coach in Kevin Stefanski. Bill Callahan's coached up the offensive line brilliantly. I think they're well set. The division is going to get weaker because of Pittsburgh. I, I think are going to take a step back regardless of what happens with Roethlisberger. So I would be very optimistic about the, the Rams. I'm, I'm not as down on the Ravens as you are just because I think the well coached are going to have both coordinators back. Greg Raymond does have his problems, but the run game's still really good. They obviously need a top receiver. The interesting one for me is, you know, I think they're, They've got a, a terrible cap situation as well, really. And, you know, Lamar Jackson's going to need that big contract. We we spoke when the Mahomes contract came out. People were talking about, is Lamar Jackson going to get Mahomes-type numbers? Well, he, he obviously shouldn't, but he's going to still require a, a big big contract. Defensive line gets gets improved with, with Ronnie Staley coming back. They obviously, it was a massive issue here with the, the snaps from the center. You know, the one that Jackson got injured on went way over his head. You get Ronnie Stanley back, you move Orlando Brown to the other side. They still need to look at that. Obviously, they lost Marshall Yander. But the, I mean, the other thing is Yannick Ngakwe as well. That's kind of been unspoken about, really. They mm. traded for him third and fifth round picks midway through the season. He only played 20 snaps in that game on Saturday. He's a free agent. You probably lose him. They tagged Matthew Jude on last year. Do you lose him to a big contract? Um, Pernell McPhee and, and Bowser as well are free agents. So there's a few questions there, but I, I would still be confident about them being, being back in the mix next year just because of the coaching and, and Lamar Wally does have some issues. I think if you get a good receiver, and we've spoken previously about how good this free agent receiver class is, they can they can take another step forward with that offense. The one that would worry me a little bit is, is the Rams, you know. Top defenses always take a step back. The top defense in 2019 was the Patriots. They didn't make the playoffs this year. Top defense in 2018 was the Bears. They didn't make the, de- um, the playoffs in 2019. So now you think, well, that defense is going to take a step back. They've lost the coordinator in Brandon Staley. There's a couple of free agents, Leonard Floyd and, and John Johnson. So you're not going to be as strong on that side of the ball. And then offensively, you know, they're, they're in the same situation that the Eagles are with Wentz, with Goff. You're not going to get rid of him. He's carrying a $34 million cap hit next year. No one's going to trade for him based on what you've seen. Sean McVay was fairly non-committal in his press conference afterwards. I, I think he's an average quarterback who's capable of the odd good game and capable of the odd really bad game. And that's going to be their Achilles heel, really. So do you look at getting another quarterback in? They obviously don't have the first round draft bit because they traded for Jalen Ramsey. Um, on, the, on the offensive line, Andrew Whitworth's due to be 40 next year. Do you, do you, I mean, he's talked about coming back. Do you want him back as your starting left tackle? Uh, he, he kind of looked a bit old in this game. I know he's had injury problems, but Rashawn Gary had a, 
had a big game against him. So that's another issue there. And yeah, I think there's there's problems there with the Rams. And it's it's mainly just for the fact that the defense is always number one defense has always take a big step back. And I don't think there's enough on the offensive side of the ball. While I think Cam Akers has, has been a good find to kind of get them stepping forward again next year. Hey, look, my hope from a Cleveland perspective is that they just learned from this weekend. It was they were playing with house money a little bit, and it was a weird game because you obviously had the the worst rule in the NFL, uh, the touchback rule on the fumble out of the end zone, which was also something which should have been reviewed but can't be under the current rules in terms of the the hit from Sorensen. That was a big swing in the game, and you could argue that they were only in it at the end because of Mahomes going out to the injury as well. Something that should be mentioned from last weekend, by the way, and I saw Connor Raw from SI talking about this, but we talk about things needing to change in the NFL and positive steps forward. The last two MVPs went out of the games this weekend with concussion neither were forced back into the game and people didn't blink twice about it. it you know, only five years ago, you both those players would have been back on the, would have been given smelling salts and been back on the field because they were too important to their teams. And I think that's a good step towards us and showing that there is an understanding of how severe head injuries can be. I am concerned about the fact that Mahomes might play this weekend, but we'll get into that in a moment. And I think from Cleveland's perspective, Stefanski's had a really good year. But the play calling at the end of that game was dreadful. They were so slow to move the ball. They played like they already had the lead because Mahomes was out of the game, thinking, oh, it's Chad Henney on the other side, maybe. So we shouldn't have to worry about them moving the ball on us. Mm. And, you know, they choked it a little bit. And so you hope that they learn, they move forwards, and they take that into next year. And I expect them to be back in the playoffs next year. And that's something you've not been able to say for Cleveland for a very long time. Uh, let's hear from Brian Billick, and then we'll look forward to this weekend's games because, uh, you know, we've got a couple of bangers ahead of us. Delighted to say that joining the show, the wonderful Super Bowl winning head coach Brian Billick, along with our friends at X Tech Pads and uh, Coach. It's been, it was a, a great divisional weekend towards conference championship, just three games left in this season. So there's lots for us to, to tuck into. I, I wanted to start off with your former team, Baltimore, and... Um, Moving on from Mark Ingram this week, that conversation when you have to let a veteran go and move on from them because it's what's best for the team, even though you know they've right. been a great servant. It's always tough, uh, particularly if it's someone of long standing. Now, Mark could come to them in free agency, and, but, but a big part of the success they've had the last couple of years. But that's the inevitable march of the NFL that because of cap reasons, uh, that's very, very real. And you have to make those tough choices. And it's not fair to the player, whether you have to let them go, whether you have to cut back on a contract of an existing player. You have to manipulate your dollars in a prudent way. And it's important to remember that the way the league is structured, the pie is only so big. It's a big pie, but it's only so big and it can only get sliced so many ways. And, and, and the players, I think, understand that every dollar I give you has to come out of somebody else's pocket. Uh, sometimes I think people mistakenly think, well, the owners can just come up with that and, and it, it's coming out of the owner's pocket. Well, no, the way it's structured, and that's what makes the league so balanced and, and, and fair, which is great, which is why you have a team in Green Bay, small market, Tampa, Kansas City, Buffalo, small market teams 
that can compete for a championship. It's not always New York and Miami and Chicago and LA as it is in some other sports because of the money. So it's, it's a good system, but so that is, they are tough conversations and most of them understand. Yeah, there's a time to it. Uh, he still feels like he can play and he probably can. It's going to be in a diminished role. Uh, and, and because of the money, Baltimore is uh, just going to have to do it in a way, you know, someone else is going to have to, to pay that freight because they need to use that money elsewhere. A lot of conversation off the back of the loss this weekend. A weird game, it has to be said, and don't think Baltimore played as badly as three points suggests by any stretch. But the one thing that I've heard time and time again is they need a number one receiver. They need an outside guy. Do you think that's somewhere the team need to be focusing on in free agency in the draft? Yeah, and it has been for a long, long time. And for some reason, as good as Baltimore has been in drafting, and acquiring free agent. That's been one area that I haven't been able to solve, even going back to my days there. A lot of other areas, yeah, but that when you look at Pittsburgh, who seems like whoever they take at receiver ends up being a great player. Baltimore has struggled with that. And yes, you do need now number one, true number ones, guys that can dictate coverage are very rare in this league. There's a lot of guys that are good. Marquise Brown is very, very good but he's not a number one. He doesn't totally dictate coverage the way a handful of guys do in the league. And they're hard to come by. But yes, that would certainly help Lamar Jackson. It's vis-a-vis saying, and Lamar's got to be better throwing the ball down the field. As brilliant as they are running the ball, and they are. We've not seen a team ability to run in the history of the game like the Baltimore Ravens. And you got to give Buffalo credit for counteracting that. And again, holding it to three points. Uh, because in today's game, you have to be able to have that explosiveness and that product. You've got to be able to, to win a championship. I still believe this, even with the changes that are going on, you have to have a guy that can win from the pocket. Doing outside the other things is great. You can do that. Mahomes does that brilliantly, but he can also beat you from the pocket. Josh Allen beats you from the pocket. Certainly, Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers, who's as good at moving outside, making throws outside the design of the offense as any, he beats you from the pocket. Right now, Lamar Jackson can't necessarily beat you from the pocket, and that's the challenge. One guy who certainly could beat you from the pocket over his career was Philip Rivers, announces his retirement today after 17 years in the league. The question I've been immediately asked is Hall of Fame or Hall of Very Good? <laughs> I think it's Hall of Fame. That, that's always tough, you know, because. The, fall, the Hall of Fame is one, the one that said, well, if we let everybody in, then you diminish the value of the Hall. But Philip Rivers, the length of his career, the fact that he doesn't have a Super Bowl is, okay, that's fine. But, but I don't know that that can be the final criteria because that's team success. Clearly, he's exhibited the, you know, uh, the level, whether it's statistics, the ability to win. He's done it with two different teams. Yeah, I think he's a Hall of Famer. He did it in an orthodox way. Is he a first ballot Hall of Famer? Debatable. Because I don't know, I'm not sure what that criteria is anymore. But clearly, you know, Drew Brees is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. And, and if indeed he retires, and there's speculation he will, that means he and Philip Rivers will come up at the same time. And so when you compare, that's going to be tough for Philip Rivers because you're going to see Drew Brees, who's a guaranteed first ballot Hall of Famer. He has all the statistics and he has a Super Bowl win. Philip Rivers has a lot of statistics, close, and he doesn't have a – so when that comparison, when they go to vote, okay, we'll do Rivers because rarely you're going to put two quarters back in at the same time. So there's a lot of things working against him, but at the end of the day, yes, I think he's a Hall of Famer. Hadn't really thought about the uh, the kind of the – 
the log jam we're going to see. But Drew Brees this year, more than likely Ben over the next couple of years. Yeah. Tom Brady, when he eventually does retire, ridiculous as though he looks at 43. So, yeah, I hadn't really thought that that's going to be. Aaron Rodgers, yeah, the yeah, same way. Yeah, not far off, I'm sure. Um, finally, before I get to the games this weekend, one guy who has looked like he's got certainly Hall of Fame traits in his career early on is Deshaun Watson. Now, if you, if you were in a situation where you were decided, right, I'm going to go hell for leather and try and go back into coaching, is that Texans job with everything going on around it, something that you would touch with a 20-foot barge pole? Sure it is, because Deshaun Watson, he's a spectacular young talent that you can build a team around. The problem is Deshaun, uh, and he's a good young man. First off, if Houston, if, when you give a guy $156 million, he's a partner, okay? And he is your partner. And Houston's bad. If they did not go to him and say, well, Deshaun, here's kind of what we're thinking, they needed to do that. But that's the extent of it. Deshaun, you're not going to pick the next head coach or general manager any more than you're going to decide who we sign free agency or draft or how we use our cap dollars. Yes, we'd love your input as a partner. And if they didn't do that, they're bad. But that's the extent of it. And where is he going to go? Where does he think he, you're going to go to Phil, uh, to Jacksonville with Urban Meyer? You think Urban Meyer's going to say, yeah, Deshaun, come in here and tell us who we're going to draft. You want to go to New England with Bill Belichick? Oh, yeah, Bill will definitely do that. Oh, Deshaun, come tell us what you think we are. Now, you want input. Ray Lewis, greatest player of all time, a linebacker, would come in constantly, and, and with Ozzie in particular, and, and hey, I, I really like this guy in free agency. Hey, these guys in the draft, here's how we should. And, and, and you, you value that. But it's okay. That's great. Now leave, and and it's our job to make the decision. I, you know, it's trite, but players play, coaches coach, general managers manager and manage, and owners own, and those are the roles. And it's got to be interactive. But if you violate those, then I mean, that's what good teams do. And and he'll be fine. They'll end up hiring a guy. He'll sit with the new general manager and the coach. They'll talk to him what their plans are, how they're going to put it together. It's inconceivable to me that they would let one of the brightest young talents at quarterback that we've seen in a while leave Houston. Those are hard to come by. And so finally looking forward to the games this weekend, just a line for each of them, starting off with the Buccaneers at the Packers. Everyone's talking Brady Rogers. Is it as simple as that's where this matchup is going to be won? It is. It is because they're both future Hall of Famers. Uh, uh, the strengths that they have, it's going to be a good matchup. Uh, no, it's not going to be like the first game. Remember in the first game, uh, that was totally Tampa Bay decided 38, 10, I think what the Packers do first drive 11 plays field goal, 60 yards, second drive, 11 plays, 80 yards, touchdown. And then the next drive, pick six tip ball, pick down to the two yard line. And, and it was all downhill from then. The Packers never really rebounded. They're a better team than that. Aaron Rodgers has been in that Aaron Rodgers threw 48 touchdowns, five interceptions, two of which came against Tampa Bay. Can he, is he going to go in and turn the ball over this game like that? No, I don't imagine. Uh, neither do I think will 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 Tom Brady. Uh, but these defenses are going to have something to say about it. They're going to not. I think we're going to see a repeat of what we saw in New Orleans, not giving up the big play. And in fairness to Tampa Bay, they did get Drew Brees to turn the ball over three times. So yeah, I, I think whoever has the ball in their hands last is going to be the one that wins the game. And then on the other side of things, the Bills go to the Chiefs, their first AFC Championship game in 26 years. There's a lot of kind of neutrals getting behind that team. But if Patrick Mahomes plays, and it looks like it's trending that way, how do you see this game going? Well, it, you can never dismiss Kansas City. Too much talent. Patrick Mahomes too special. But Buffalo's pretty good. 
that defense matches up pretty good, I think, with Kansas City. I think Josh Allen will has performed and will play much better than he did last year, where he didn't perform well against Kansas City in, in Kansas City's win. And Patrick Mahomes, yeah, I believe he'll play, but he won't consciously do it. But you want to you're gonna be a little careful about running around and getting that next hit that might trigger the concussion again. So might that dampen a little bit of some of the magic that he does? Not consciously. He's going, I'm going to just, you got how many, what are you going to hear? I'm just going to play the way I play. Okay. But in the back of your mind, do you couch that a little bit? Maybe a little bit. And Josh Allen and what they do, I think matches up very well with the Kansas city defense. So this ought to be a heck of a game. Coach, it's a pleasure as always. As people are starting to get vaccinated, we get back towards a life where right. people can play contact sport again. Go get your X-Tech pads. Unfortunately, we won't be together on Super Bowl week as we normally catch up on Radio Row, but I'm sure we'll be chatting like this on Super we'll do it. Super Bowl winning head coach Brian Billick joining us with X-Tech pads, talking the Ravens, talking a bit of... The head coaching situation in Houston as well as uh, getting into this weekend's games. You heard his thoughts on it there, so let's uh, have our thoughts on it. Uh, we'll go, well, yeah, let's go in, um, go in order again. So, uh, NFC Championship game is up first in the 8 o'clock window. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers going to the Green Bay Packers. I normally throw to one of you first on this. I'm going to go first on this once because I have felt a little bit all week this week sick of hearing about Tom Brady and how brilliant he looked at 43 because he was playing opposite Drew Brees. He was made to look good in that game because he was playing against a guy because everyone's going, he's a year older and he's doing things that Drew Brees clearly can't do. But he also can't throw the ball too deep downfield. It looks a complete and utter mess. They really didn't move the offense very well. The points came off short field from the turnovers and those turnovers aren't going to be there against a Packers team who have 48 touchdowns and five inter- only five interceptions from their quarterback, two of which came against the Buccaneers earlier this year. And I don't think that's going to happen again. So I fancy the Pack actually quite heavily in this one and I think we're going to see a fall back to the pack of the Buccaneers but then who else here has rooted against Tom Brady in the playoffs before and been wrong so who knows every single year (laughs) just on Green Bay I think it's worth giving Matt LaFleur some love because he kind of seems to be the underrated guy in, in in there and it's people just tend to think it's Aaron Rodgers elevating his game to another level we spoke previously about how head coaching jobs isn't just about X's and O's and you know, that kind of side of things. And I think he came into a difficult situation in that he's not much older than Rogers. He was kind of not really a guy that was that well known in terms of his personality. He's quite reserved. It could have gone really wrong. You then, you then try and implement a new system that perhaps doesn't show Rogers in the same swashbuckling, making all the plays like that he'd previously been in. There was questions about whether he would like that. You then draft another guy in the first round, another quarterback. And there's a real potential for that to kind of blow up in your face. And I think he's just done a fantastic job of getting Rodgers and the whole team to, to buy into the system. He's clearly a brilliant offensive mind. I think I saw that the Rams hadn't given up points on the first three drives all season and Green Bay scored on the first five drives here. I think they're fantastically well balanced. They use the run game well. They've got three options there. The offensive line's still playing well since even after Bakhtiari got injured. And the defence has stepped up. You know, they look a lot better since Kenny Clark got back. Krishan Gary, who was a really intriguing prospect coming out of Michigan, who Simon knows well, is is playing really well now. He's transitioned. Yeah, now he's transitioned <laughs> to an outside linebacker. I think he had 1.5 sacks here. And 
Yeah, I, I really like the Packers across the board and I, I don't put too much stock into that earlier game against um, the Buccaneers here in the season. I think that was just a complete anomaly. I don't expect Rodgers to play that badly again and I think the Packers, they've just sort of got that look about them that they might go all the way and, and win a second ring for Rodgers this year. I, I think Green Bay will win as well. I, I think that you just almost have to throw out the um, the first game. I thought Rodgers got gun-shy after that interception and the game just became a bit of a mess offensively. But I thought to that point, they'd really held Tampa Bay. What I think they need to do, and I think all of us can can go back to sort of the 2015 AFC Championship game and how the Broncos teed off on Brady that day. The four sacks got hit 17 times. I think I looked earlier on Von Miller and DeMarcus Ware were just all over him. I think that's something that Green Bay have got to do, make Brady uneasy. I know every year it seems like the Dolphins used to beat New England once a year, often in Miami. And it was because the Dolphins, whether that was Jason Taylor or Cam Wake, just kept knocking him over, knocking him over, knocking him over. Yeah, and Brady's a great quarterback, but like most quarterbacks, they don't handle pressure particularly well. And I think that's one of the keys to the game, whether that's blitzing someone like Darnell Savage, you know, whether that's, you know, you're going to need big games from the Smith boys, from from Gary, as, as uh, Lee just mentioned there. And I, I think, um, but I think Green Bay do have enough on defence to, to handle them. I think the play-action game, their linebackers are really aggressive, especially Devin White. I mean, he's a really good player. He's very aggressive, as is Antoine Winfield. I think they can be suckered in with play-action. Vita Vea coming back potentially for the Buccaneers is huge to try and control that that run game. I mean, I don't know how many snaps he'll be able to play given that he, you know, he's been out for sort of five months, four months after breaking that ankle. That would be big. But I, th- I just think that three-headed run game in the weather with Aaron Rodgers, the, the receivers, you know, getting Lazard back healthy. Tunyon's going to be big in this game, I think. They don't have a corner that can cover Devontae Adams the way that Jalen Ramsey was able to cover him. So I think Adams will have a big day. I just think Green Bay will have too much. And I think... Uh, I think Green Bay will make their second Super Bowl of the Rodgers era. And listen, this this might be a victim of the moment thing, and sometimes emotions can go the wrong way in games as well. But you talked about the first round pick of a quarterback last year. Of course, most famously when they did that was when they picked Aaron Rodgers, despite having Brett Favre in the building. We should mention the passing of Ted Thompson this week at just 68 years old. He left the team three years ago because of health reasons. It wasn't expected that you know he would... You know, not live for more than a few more years at that point, but certainly he stepped away from football to kind of try and protect his health. And he's a guy who made that huge, bold decision to go and take Aaron Rodgers, was hated by everyone that could possibly be involved in the Green Bay Packers organisation, seemingly every fan. Brett Favre himself just thought it was a complete pox on the organisation. And now that guy's about to win MVP and possibly go to another Super Bowl. So... I I kind of feel like that's going to be something that the Packers this weekend, I'm sure there will be some kind of celebration of him prior to the game. And that's one of those things that can lift a team that extra drop further, knowing that particularly for someone like Rodgers, he's had that big emotional blow this week and is going to want to, in cheesy terms, go out and do it for Ted kind of thing. So, yeah, it was obviously a really sad piece of news this week. And I saw Andrew Brandt talking on it brilliantly in the last day or so. And, you know, it's one of those things that it kind of feels like another reason why it's destined to be at Lambeau this weekend, even if it's a horrible reason for that to be the case. Yeah, a couple of things on, on Ted Thompson. The Packers had four All-Pros this year. All four were drafted by Ted Thompson, and then I saw a tweet from Field Yates here. In, in his final month in the job, he extended uh, Devante Adams, who at that time had had early career struggles and people weren't convinced he could be the guy he was. And Corey Lindsay, a fifth-round centre, he's now an all-pro. And he also signed Robert Tunyon, who is a complete unknown tight end to the practice squad. So that just shows you how good he was at an eye for a talent there. Should we move on to the late game? Do it. 
Bills Chiefs. Bills in their first AFC Championship game in 26 years. We all know what happened the last four times they went to a championship game. They were winners there, but not winners two weeks later or a week later, as it would have been at that point. I can't help but unashamedly kind of root for the Bills this weekend because I just love the story of it. I guess the huge story of the build-up week, though, is Patrick Mahomes. Practice Wednesday and Thursday. I assume that means he'll practice Friday as well. There was a lot of talk about how he was, you know, on social media and interacting straight after the game. And, you know, he had to go out because of how wobbly he was straight afterwards. But that he went into protocol and all the early signs were good. I know, Simon, I think you spoke for all of us when you said they were. I'm concerned that this is going to be rushed back because of who he is. And between that, and the toe injury, I think it's all eyes on Mahomes this weekend. Yeah, I mean, he shouldn't be playing. I mean, we all saw what happened. We all saw how he couldn't get up. And I just think it's, you know, he was obviously going to play, of course. I don't think there was any way, any scenario that the Chiefs would have entered into an, an AFC Championship game with Chad Henney at quarterback. But I just think it's a bit of a sham, frankly. But that's kind of beside the point. He's going to play, obviously. You worry about his health. And I think the key to this game, actually, is which team can run the ball more successfully because I don't think their Chiefs are necessarily going to want Mahomes just to stand back in the pocket and throw it 45 times and put himself up to get hit and I think the Bills have got to be able to balance it against the 20, 21st ranked defence in the NFL in terms of being able to stop the run and I think what we'll see is that I think Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was a full participant in practice yesterday so it's the Williams, Edwards-Hilaire, Le'Veon Bell triumvirate against Zach Moss and Devin Singletree and then what Josh Allen can do but I think whoever can run the ball, and, and the Bills, as powerful as their offense is, certainly through the air, you're going to kind of want to keep Mahomes off the field. I mean, he's 24-1 and one in his last 25 starts, the first quarterback since 1950 to go on such an ins- insane run. But I do fancy the Bills. I think the Bills are a really good team. I think defensively they've got much better, and Matt Milano healthy has been really important. And I think this will be a really important game. I, I wonder whether or not they've got enough juice on the back end uh, to shut Mahomes down. But, that you know, they're playing well. Trey Davis White is a really good player. Port, the two safeties are great. Teron Johnson stepped up with a big pick six against the Ravens. So there's some real talent there, but it's just whether or not they've got quite enough to go on the road to Kansas City and knock off the defending champions. But I think it's going to be a really close, really good, really exciting game. But I do worry a little bit about Mahomes' health and, you know, because that was a hell of a, a situation. It wasn't a hell of a shot because, it, you know, we were all kind of questioning how much he got hit on the head, but it was clear that he was. You know, his legs were his legs are gone. So, yeah, it was uh, somebody at the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you another question, Simon. Yes. Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL and statistically the best in recent history against the Blitz. You just yeah. shouldn't bring pressure on him. No, you shouldn't. Does that change because of the toe in particular? Because actually, you don't know. I mean, I, I, you have to assess it and see how he is on his first drive, but. Do the Bills think, right, let's bring some heat? Or do you just try and contain him and and hope that he's not 100% essentially because he's a guy who can beat you every which way, as we know? I think the first couple of downs uh, on the first drive, you probably want to send some pressure. You want to knock him up a bit. You want to you know rough him up a bit. You want to see where his head's at, literally and f- f- uh, figuratively. You want to see if he can take some hits. And also, you just want to see how mobile he is in the pocket. Is he going to be able to move around the pocket and throw off platform, which he does so well? But if he's not going to be able to do that, then I think, you know, you might continue that policy of blitzing. I think if he proves that, A, he can take a hit, and B, you know, he evades a rusher, gets sprints out to the right and throws the ball 40 yards down the field, you're probably not going to want to 
to want to blitz too often. But I think you just have to wait and see. But I, I certainly, if I was, if I was Buffalo, I'd be sending the heat very early just to see where he's at. Liam, on the other side of it, I, I find the, the question Simon raised about the Buffalo offense interesting because both these defenses, and the reason we were talking about the under when we did our, our bet ball chat, is that both these defenses despite the Buffalo not being great against the run and despite the Chiefs not being kind of great overall and not at a championship level, I don't think, neither give up a big play. And so there's a possibility for lots of long drives, lots of dink and dunk, lots of, you know, Cole Beasley for the Bills as well and obviously trying to run the ball. Do you think that they are set up, though, considering how poorly the running backs have played this season to be able to pick apart a Chiefs defence who are feeling themselves a bit after last week? I think one of the, the biggest stats that um, I took away from the Bills regular season that really impressed me about Dable was they were the only the second team in NFL history to have 20 first downs in every single game this year, which just shows you how well they can they can drive down the field and put together these long drives. The running game is an interesting one because the Ravens game, they didn't call a run play the entire first half in a game that was played in swirling, wane, swirling wind, sorry, where you think that running the ball would be beneficial. And then they came out second half, that first drive, and they got Devin Singletary involved a lot more. And I think in both of these playoff games, Dable's done really well at making adjustments at halftime and coming out and playing really well that way. I still feel like there's much more to come from this Bills offense in the playoffs so far. I don't think we've seen it in either the Colts game or the Ravens game. You know, you look at the Ravens game, the difference was Lamar Jackson made an error and Josh Allen didn't. He's... If you're looking at it from a positive perspective from the Bills, you'd think, well, they've won two games here without playing their best football on the offensive side of the ball. Surely an offence that was second best in terms of points scored during the season will will start to to step it up a notch. And this could be Josh Allen's coming out party. You know, he, this could be the one where he proves he's, he's ready to put himself in that elite quarterback conversation. But yeah, the running game is an interesting one. I'm not sure whether they can rely on it just because they don't appear to have shown any interest in doing so the past few weeks, but it's that short passing game, which is basically an extension of the running game. You know, can they get Singletary out on the outside? Can they get Cole Beasley in the slot? Can John Brown be effective? Stephon Diggs is, has obviously been fantastic as he has throughout the entire season. He's going to be a big player in this game, but it would worry me a little bit that they haven't kind of put together a big offensive performance so far in the playoffs because they're going to need it against the Chiefs. And it's interesting that actually from a Bills perspective, you go back to well, week 10 when they lost to the Cardinals in Arizona, that weird 32-30 game, you know, a Hail Murray. If they hadn't lost that game, we'd be talking about a team who were on what, a quick maths, uh, nine, uh, on 11-12 game winning streak at this point. But off the back of their bye, their two worst games have been the last two weeks in the playoffs. And so it's, I don't think you can do that going to Kansas City with everything that they've got unless it turns out that Patrick Mahomes really isn't healthy and that's going to be a real problem for them. So it's, I think it's the hardest game to call this weekend. Well, that's only two games, but I think it's been the hard, one of the hardest games to call in this playoffs for all of the stuff around it. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be really good fun. I can't wait for this weekend. Uh, any final thoughts, boys, before we sign off? Yes, can you play us out with the tune from you? <laughs> Literally, absolutely not. But uh, so I, I will consider next week setting it up Plugging it in and playing you out with something. You've got to go. Er, 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 er. Worst part is I, I don't play. If that doesn't happen next week. I'm never doing this podcast again, regardless <laughs> of the fact that it's essentially well, whatever. I'm just never doing it again. Fine.
Fine. Two birds, one stone by the sounds of it. Yeah. <laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Simon, Liam, top stuff. Thank you very much for listening and watching. Keep checking us out on the Gridiron socials at Gridiron on Twitter, at UK Gridiron on Instagram. This has been the Gridiron Show. Hold up. 